Now the wireless means I get to put this back on. Uh, just for show of hands, just the kids here. How many of you kids consider yourself good test takers? I'm not going to give you a test this morning. Don't worry. Yeah, come on, raise them high. Good test takers. You should be proud of that. Good. Now, how many of you guys that consider yourself good test takers enjoy essay tests? Not, not, not as many. You know, essay tests are really kind of uh, scary, aren't they? You, you put all your thoughts and all your work down on a piece of paper, and then you send it in to the teacher. And it's going to be interpreted, and it's going to be like, like um, you know, perused over in every word. There was actually a professor at Moody when I was there. I won't tell you his name. But he was notorious. Well, the word was that he was notorious for not reading papers. I knew a fellow student, and maybe this is the only one he didn't read, but I knew a fellow student that put in, bedded in one of his papers, Dr. So-and-so, if you read this line, I will give you $100. Put that in the middle of his paper. <laughs> and, and he told me, he said, I can tell you he doesn't read the papers because I wrote this in the middle of my paper. But anyways. <laughs> so we turn in these essay tests, and they're getting you know, searched over and examined for grammar and all this, and we're waiting for our grade, right? There's, there's a lot of nervousness that goes into that. Let's review just a little bit from last week. And we were able to review this, you know, in our worship and, and our understanding and that, that Christ took on himself the full wrath of God, righteous wrath of God for every sin of thought, word, and deed for all of mankind, for all of time. He took that fully on himself and absorbed it and gave up his spirit and died upon that being finished. The question at that point is like the essay being turned in for grading. Did it work? Did he pass? Or was it at some point of absorbing all of that wrath, that at some point it got on him of some way or some point overflowed the top and, and his capacity came to the brim and overflowed and, and somehow he became unrighteous at that point and in dying failed. Was he righteous enough to absorb all that and pass. Jesus' resurrection is important to us because it shows the grade, if you will, that he received. Failure would mean failure in his being our Savior. His resurrection is like receiving an A plus, perfect in saviorship. This morning, we're going to be stringing together the accounts from the Gospels of that resurrection morning. It's a morning of, of angels. 
that are, if you will, that are giddy with, with excitement, but yet angels are messengers. They're there to deliver the specific message that they are there to give to specific people, and we'll see that. We'll see how that unfolds a little bit. You'll see if you observe the different gospel writers, how they trace different characters through this morning of the resurrection. How John showed the, the, the experience of Mary Magdalene. But Matthew painted with a broad brush of the other women and what they had seen. And Luke broadened his, his story beyond Judea to the disciples that had left and traveled to Emmaus. We're just going to string those together into what I believe is a course of events on that morning. So we start here with Matthew 28. It says, After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Uh, one writer I read talked about there was six women named in the different courses of this, in this procession. You have um, one named Salome. You have Mary, the mother of John and James, who was sister to Mary. I don't know how that works. Sister to Mary, the mother of Christ, who was with them. Mary Magdalene as well. It says, There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, we know from other gospel accounts that these women didn't see the tomb the, the stone roll back. Matthew's account here is not saying that the women saw this angel. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and become like dead men. So in the preceding verses, we have the women walking up to the tomb, but at this point, they have seen no angel. Okay? So that's the course of events before they're arriving at the tomb. So this is the guards' experience. And they are the first to experience the angel who rolls the, the stone back. So when they, meaning the women, when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, I pose to you at this point, Mary Magdalene is distraught and runs back to where John and Peter are. Mary Magdalene leaves. So they're entering the first time in the tomb, and they find it empty. And that's all they know, is it's just empty. Where is he? What's been done to him? Now it says, while they were wondering about this, they're outside of the tomb again, suddenly two men clothed in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. It says, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here 
he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day raised again? And they remembered his words. So this angel is, is aware. These two angels standing there, Mark, uh, Matthew and Mark account, just give an account of one angel, but they're describing the one that's speaking. And so that's what's significant to them. There's two angels here in the story. And I get this, this I like this idea that the angels are aware of the gospel story. The angels are aware of our redemptive story. And this guy's the first one that gets to explain it. Saying, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. I just, you know, I guess maybe being a preacher, I get wrapped up a little bit in this idea that this angel was getting to explain the gospel to these women, getting to explain what was happening right before them. He's kind of like, I wish I... I wish I could share with you what I've been seeing for thousands of years as this has unfolded. It goes on, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see. That's so significant. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee where you will see him. Now I have told you. I love also how Matthew includes the invitation, come and look. Look at the evidence here or the lack of a body. So they enter a second time into the tomb. And this is where Mark gives the account of them entering into the tomb. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The speaking angel reappears within the tomb. It's kind of, I don't know if you've seen the movies, kind of like where this leprechaun or something keeps on like popping up here or there or something. That's kind of their experience here. He pops up inside the tomb this time. And he's sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Again, see the proof. So there's been a departure from the tomb at this point. Two to three departures. First you have the guards. Then you have Mary Magdalene running back. She hasn't seen anything besides an empty tomb. And you have the women heading back to Jerusalem as well. 
They're just outside of the gates. Matthew follows the guards. It says, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him while you were asleep. Now, if you're a guard, you're sitting there going, okay, I'm a guard. We've got a whole bunch of us here. You want me to say I fell asleep. What do you think is going to happen to me? And it's just as preposterous at the idea that a group of men could come, roll back the stone, fight off the guards or wait for them to fall asleep, all of them to fall asleep, get the body of Jesus and sneak out while these trained killers are just kind of derelict of duty. But their concern is, I'm going to lose my head. That's why he goes off forward in verse 14. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. I doubt that actually happened, that they were kept out of trouble, to tell you the truth. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So Matthew is saying, this is what the Jews are still circulating, that we stole the body. So we have, this is the, the soldier's story as they've traveled from the tomb. Then we pick up with Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20. So she came running to Simon and Peter, Simon Peter and the other disciple, the, the one whom Jesus loved, this being John, who's writing the account, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Remember, Mary at this point has not seen the angelic messengers. It's likely that John and Peter were in another location from the other disciples at this point. So Peter and John go running to the tomb. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You love John's humility here. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen in, lying there, but did not go in. This is the position I would be in after running to the tomb. <laughs> you know, that's how I imagine John getting there. But then Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. There's Peter's personality for you. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separated from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first, being John, like how he keeps, trying to, he keeps digging that in there, he also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had risen from the dead. Then the disciple went back to, to where the disciples went back to where they were staying. So some time passes. We've got angels reporting to some of the women. Mary Magdalene goes back and shares. Well, we'll review in a second here. But some time passes, enough time for Mary to get back, for 
John and Peter to travel there and for John and Peter to go back to where they were staying. Also, the women, Mary Magdalene and the other women, have gotten together and kind of compared notes a little bit. Mary now, Magdalene, is, is aware of the angel's announcement to the other women. At po- this point, no one has mentioned angels to the other disciples. So the 11 disciples decide we're going to gather back together, possibly in the same upper room that they celebrated the Lord's Supper, Passover, on Friday. So all the women gather together and report to the disciples. This is where Luke picks it up in, verse, in chapter 24. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women. What did they not believe? They didn't believe about the angels because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Uh, one writer that I read about this said, there was a lot of running back and forth between the interior of Jerusalem and, the, and just outside to the tomb this morning. A lot of running back and forth. So this time Peter goes back. It doesn't mention that he has John with him. But notice that there's others that are told as well. Not just the 11. The 11 and all the others. Included in this group was probably two disciples that decided this is getting spooky and these women are going to get us in some major trouble. And so they depart and head to a little town called Emmaus. We know this because of the testimony that they give later, and you'll see that. Peter runs to the tomb. At some point on this morning, Jesus appears to Peter. You can read about this just briefly in 1 Corinthians 15.5, but it's also a part of the a testimony of the disciples who travel to Emmaus as well. So let's review here. A band of women left Bethany in the dark. As they neared the tomb in the early dawn, dawn there was a violent earthquake. The soldiers saw the angel roll back the stone and fled from the garden. The women enter the garden at dawn, saw the stone rolled back. They enter the tomb, discovered Jesus' body was missing. Mary Magdalene left the other women and go and tell Peter and John. The angels appear to the other women. The other women went to tell the disciples of Jesus' resurrection. The soldiers reported Jesus' resurrection to the chief priests. Peter and John visit the tomb and left. The disciples gather together in one place. The women report the angelic announcement of Jesus' resurrection. Peter returns to the tomb. Now at this point, Mary Magdalene and the other women decide we're going back to the garden where the tomb is located. I want to say something about Mary. Well, let's read it first. It says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. God 
was getting something very clear across. We have this idea, you know, maybe we see it in a movie and they got to make this all compact, that there was just kind of one angelic announcement. It's almost like everybody that went to the tomb, aside from Peter and John, I wonder how they felt, bumped into an angel. In fact, it was all the women. Which is very strange because in this day and age, their testimony would not be able, be even admissible into a court of law. Same way with revealing himself to shepherds when he first came. Kind of God's quirky way of doing things. So it says, she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? She says, They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. Notice these angels say nothing about the resurrection. They say nothing about, Didn't you know? Don't you remember that he said he must be crucified and be buried? and rise again? They simply ask, why are you crying? At this, she turned and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was he. Maybe he had his hood pulled over his head. Maybe he was turned to the side. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, If you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll go and get him. This is one of my favorite accounts of one of my favorite people in the Bible. I I wondered if I was going to be able to get through reading these without breaking up a little bit. But let let me tell you young men something. You want to marry a Mary Magdalene. You want to marry a woman who longs for her Jesus. This is a picture of a woman, I I imagine her being kind of petite, and she's willing to go and find this stinky body, three days dead, of the man that she adores, her Savior, And she doesn't know how, but she'll drag him back to where his body belongs. You want to marry a woman that is moved by her Savior's death. Maybe even makes her husband dress up on Easter. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said all these things to her. 
while the other women are somewhere else in the garden, it says that Jesus also appeared to them. It says, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasping his feet and worshiping him. I don't know if in this time he went up, presented himself, came back down, but apparently he doesn't have a problem with his feet being grasped. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will see me. So Jesus appears then. Remember, since the women's coming to the room where the 11 are and others and informing them, we've seen angels, two men depart and head for Emmaus. Jesus is pretty busy on this morning. Now, at the same time, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. I think that there's a reason why Luke includes this, that it's about seven miles from Jerusalem. There's a sense of, this is a long day of Jesus revealing himself, of angels telling of the story. This was not something that they were to get wrong or to miss. So I don't know at what point he meets up with them, but it says they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood, their faces downcast. This, I think, to them was almost like a final insult. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him. And this, we get an idea of just how much of Jerusalem was affected by the events of this Passover weekend with Jesus' death. He says, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? I don't know if he's being sarcastic or he's just kind of like, really? What things, he asks? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. You know, the original reason why we call awake after a person dies, we, we hold a wake, is in the chance that they might wake up. It comes from, from before medical means of truly being able to judge a person's death. And so this is why they say, and what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. Here again, they're in the room, with the disciples when the women come back. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And they had left before the women came back 
having seen him. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, being Emmaus, Jesus continued as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went and stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. There was some sort of spiritual blindness over their eyes up to this point. Or maybe he, his, his appearance was purposely shadowed from them. It says, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And then Luke continues, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. So we have guys that have walked seven miles to Emmaus and then returned briskly back to Jerusalem. We're talking late on resurrection day at this point. There they have found the 11 and those with them assembled together. So the women have come back. They said, we've seen him. Peter and John, Peter has come back and he's like, I went to the tomb twice. I haven't seen anything. What's going on? I thought I was important. And they're saying, these men from back from Emmaus, it is true. The Lord has risen. Oh, I'm sorry. He's appeared to Simon. So he ha- I guess he was important. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now this is the first time that all the eleven and others are seeing Jesus. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do your doubts arise in your minds? Look at your hands. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you have seen I have. And when he said this and showed him his hands and his feet, he wants to give him one more proof. And while he was still doing this, while they still did not believe it because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? Ghosts don't eat. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, says, After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. I believe that this was probably at that meeting in Galilee that the angels kept saying, go to Galilee, just as he told you, meet him in Galilee. And this would have been the giving of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. 
And last of all, he appeared to me, Paul says, as one abnormally born. In other words, much later, he appears to Paul on the road to Damascus. God was making a point by having his son appear to many. He was making a point by having his messengers announce his resurrection before his appearing. To the disciples, the resurrection was like the greatest plot twist. I don't know if you've ever been reading a book and all of a sudden something happens toward the end and you're like, whoa, where's this going? And then you have a twist in the plot and you realize this is what it was meant to be all along. That's what the disciples went through with this. What is the resurrection to us, though? I just want to look at two verses briefly. Romans 4.25 says this, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We talked about justification last week. It's when a judge looks at an innocent person, rings the gavel and says, I declare that they are righteous. They owe nothing to the court or to the people of this land. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was raised to life so that we could be declared righteous before God. Ephesians 2.6 tells us, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. A person who trusts in Christ as their Savior are seen as being in Christ. They have a new identity. They find their home with him, raised with him, as if we paid for our own sins on the cross, as if we rose from the dead ourselves to eternal life as he did. You know, Jesus' resurrection is different from Lazarus or any other account of resurrections from the dead that we have, and that's this. He rose and he didn't die after that. Everyone else that has been raised from the dead looks forward to death again. But Jesus' resurrection was a raising to eternal life, never to die again. And that is the resurrection that we get to participate in, in trusting alone in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. Have with me here my, my wallet. And a credit card. Whether you use credit cards or debit cards, I'm not going to get into that. But you know the experience. And kids, I'll, I'll, I'll explain to you the experience of how this goes on. You take this card here, and there's a little machine. And, you know, nowadays, you know, we do it ourselves. And you swipe it in the machine, and you sit there and you watch it. And maybe you're running through your mind thinking, okay, do I have enough credit left for this purchase? Or if it's a debit card, you're thinking, okay, have I gone over $400 today? Or is there enough in my account? And if you watch that machine, it says processing, 
processing. And then what does it say? Approved. When Christ died and took on the wrath of God for our sins, it's like he took himself and swiped for our debt. When he rose from the dead, that's like the machine saying, approved. There's enough credit there. There's enough righteousness there. There's enough almightiness there. There's enough eternal strength, eternal righteousness, eternally God there to pay for it all. Wayne Grudem puts it this way. He says, When the Father in essence said to Christ, All the penalty for sins has been paid, and I find you not guilty but righteous in my sight, he was thereby making the declaration that would also apply to us once we trusted in Christ for salvation. It is in this way Christ's resurrection also gave us final proof that he earned our justification. Approved. Payment approved. Let me ask you this. What must you do next in that scenario? Maybe there's a little piece of paper that prints off. Maybe it's um, uh, right there on the little machine. Have you ever read what it says? In some po- in, on some of the machines or on the papers, it says, in signing this, I authorize for this to be withdrawn. Here's one of the saddest stories that have ever been told. That Christ's righteousness was paid. That it was approved. Enough righteousness, enough payment for every person that has ever lived. But the vast majority of people that have walked this earth have not signed that paper and said, pay for me. Withdraw from this account for me. And that's what it means for us to receive his righteousness. That's what it means for us to say, Lord, I don't have enough righteousness of my own. And I've got plenty of sins. Will you take of this vast payment, of this vast account of payment and righteousness, and would you pay for me with that? That's what it means to receive Christ as our Savior. And that's what I want to challenge you with this Easter morning. We celebrate the approval of payment. But making it ours is still up to us. Let's bow our heads, and then the worship team is going to lead us in a couple more songs. Father, thank you for the payment made. Thank you for sending the only one that would be able to do it.
the only righteous one, the only almighty eternal God, God the Son. Thank you that he is big enough, that he is good enough to pay for all of us. Lord, if there be anyone here who insanely would not want the payment for themselves, I pray, Lord God, that you would show them their need. I pray, Lord God, that you would show them that that relationship with you is the meeting of every of the deepest longings that we could ever have. And it's a redefinition of life as we know it. Lord, we thank you again. We praise you. Lord, we pronounce Christ is risen. In Jesus' name, amen.